night's thought. Nostalgia will destroy us all. Uh, Not to be hyperbolic or anything, I just, just thought I'd say it. Well, maybe nostalgia won't destroy us, but it's certainly by and large keeping us from being unique and uh, safe and not moving forward. And isn't that what we need as, uh, as the human race? You know, we're all a bunch of sharks and a shark needs to move to survive. Or at least that's what, you know, they told me in business school. No, I'm just, I didn't, I didn't go to business school. Uh, but yeah, I, what we may have on our hands here is a, is a dead shark. This is like to quote that movie, Annie Hall, you know, you know, we're all, we all may just be dead sharks in the water. I don't know. may have just overextended my metaphor, but you know, here's what I'm saying here. I've just been noticing so much that, uh, we, we really seem to be obsessed with looking backward, visiting our past, thinking about where we've come from and not really thinking about what we're, where we're going. And this, I'm not the first person to say this. This is by and large, this is not a revelatory thought from uh, from me tonight, okay? But it's hard not to think about these things these days because uh, we, we, we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic, right? And the quarantines, by and large, seem to be lifting. And we can all come out of our houses again. Uh, but... But it's but there's no data to suggest that the pandemic is over, you know. And I think over the last few months, people have been using the words quarantine and pandemic interchangeably. Like, of course, if there's a pandemic, there's a quarantine. If there's a quarantine, there's a pandemic. But now the the the, the terms seem to be separating, right? And so there's still a pandemic going on, but there's no more quarantine. And I've talked about this in the past few weeks. I mean, how can how can I not? This is the defining moment of 2020 and perhaps the entire decade. Uh, the, this weird time in, in the spring of 2020 when there was this uh, new strain of virus that has just swept the earth and forced everybody inside and, and led to all these deaths and, um, you know... And for a while, people were just kind of treating it as like something that's going to go away or even as like a novelty. People were kind of pretending that the quarantine was cute and they were going inside and taking cute pictures and posting on Instagram. Oh, look at me. I'm climbing the walls. Right. And, and now that summer is here, uh, we seem to be pretending that this is over. And, and I've been watching television and, and, and advertisements this week and and, and the advertisements seem to be telling us that it's over, right? And uh, there's this one particular commercial for uh, Yingling, you know, beer, which I like Yingling beer. 
but but I hate this commercial because it's telling everybody we welcome you back. Welcome back. Come on back to the bars. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't. Don't do that. Don't go to the bars, okay? It's it's still dangerous out there. This is not over. And and it's so weird because uh you know pretty much all the TV I watch these days is in the morning when I wake up and I have my coffee and I watch the news, you know. And the news is saying, at least here in Alabama, that we're, we're far from over. We're far from done for it with, with this thing. And they're saying, you know, especially here in Alabama, uh, that like if we were our own country, we would be the country with like the fourth highest numbers in the world. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, but nevertheless, I still am looking at the... Uh, at the statistics every day, and, and we've gone up in Alabama every single week for the past three weeks that we've been lifting these restrictions. You know, as I'm sitting in my my, my my studio right now, I'm looking outside, I'm watching all these people go down to the bars of Lakeview. There's two people out there right now, walking down there, going to bars without masks on, pretending this whole thing is over. It's not over. You know, but there's one thing that you don't mess with when it comes to America. You don't mess with an American's summer, you know. Uh, Americans love summer. And uh, to, to many Americans, summer is the most nostalgic of seasons. You know, they do things in the summer that have been, you know, they're, they're, that have been dictated to them by years of romance. Going to the beaches and splashing around in the, in the ocean. And going to the mountains, going on that great American road trip, all these things they've been doing since they were little kids. And uh, nostalgic, by and large, dictates our summer. You know, we're told that, you know, in the summer, we are supposed to get out and, and enjoy being alive. Enjoy being free and human beings who can go and experience things, right? And, uh, you know, even me, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time right now with my summer because, you know, I'm a teacher and I, I get summers off. And uh, every year for the last, uh, I don't know, five or six years, my wife and I, we, we've gone on vacations. And that's missing from this year. And I was just thinking today, like, this does not feel like mid-June. It doesn't feel like the summertime. What's going on? It's because I haven't been camping yet. And I'm heavily, heavily considering breaking some of these, uh, you know, breaking some of these restrictions, you know, and, and, and doing these things. But I just, I, I, I keep telling myself, no, this is not over. This is not over, you know. So, yeah, you, you just don't mess with Americans in their summer and that's why they're all coming out now and, and saying that this whole thing, it's all overblown the pandemic is over, we can go out, you know the news may tell us one thing but the commercials are telling us something else and and, and, and I, I also think that we have this thing where we, we tend to believe advertisements more than we do the news because advertisements tell us what we want to hear and sometimes there's no real difference between the news and advertising <laughs> okay we all have this thing that, you know, America was once this place where there were freedoms and you, you didn't have to wear a mask if you didn't want to. You didn't have to do this. I mean, you know, wearing a mask is inf infringing on my freedoms, right? They didn't wear masks back in 1918. I'm actually looking at pictures right now <laughs> of them wearing masks in 1918. Uh, there were actually people arrested in San Francisco 
for not wearing masks. It's funny, in you know, a hundred years, nothing's changed in San Francisco. They still uh, arrest you for, uh, you know, these uh, these things that in every other country uh, or uh, state in the world, you know, were just normal behavior. But yeah, you know, they. Uh, I was looking at, at some of this. You know, they 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 arrested people for not wearing masks in 1918. So there was never this time in America where uh, you could just be a jerk during a quarantine and, and get away with it. <laughs> okay. So this uh, nostalgia is sometimes just a completely foolhardy endeavor, I guess is, is all I'm trying to say. And we need to start thinking about moving forward and stop living in this romanticized past. I just don't think it ever existed. from Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome in. This is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. Thank you. Thanks for joining me here. It's about 1130 here, Central Standard Time on a Saturday night. It's great to have you. live streaming tonight. I am live. Something I've been doing in the last uh, few weeks of this show during the summertime and really been enjoying. If you're not here, if you're not, if you're not watching live on YouTube and uh, you, you know, you can obviously watch the show later, borrowing, barring any technical problems on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes. And if you are watching live, thank you so much for joining me here. Of course, you won't have to, you don't have to stay all night. It's not going to hurt my feelings. I do have a, a, a pretty epic show planned for you tonight. Got some music coming up. Got, got a trip to the Video Street Video Store. We're going to uh, read some tales from Viscaga, Alabama a little bit later. A series of stories I've been doing the last couple of weeks. Been enjoying that. But if you are watching live, you know, feel free to comment. I can't reply to every comment as it comes, but because uh, I'm, I'm doing a show here and it will distract me with my intense ADHD. But I will, uh, you know, look at some stuff during the breaks and, uh, and get back to you. So, yeah, stick around. Nostalgia kicked me out of a Chuck E. Cheese one time. You know, I, I think I was thinking about this whole thing with uh, looking in the past and, and living in the past. And, and it's something that we seem to be uh, conditioned to do from a very early age. You know, just thinking about where we've come from as human beings in, in our individual journeys, right? learning things and, and, and wishing we knew things back then that we know now is uh, an essential part of the human condition. And it leads us to uh, sometimes just living our entire lives uh, out of nostalgia, right? And it's an eerie thing when we uh, kind of return to someplace that we once knew so well, 
We just do so for nostalgia's purposes, and then we realize I've made a big mistake. I'm not welcome here anymore. And, you know, you see this kind of thing as a teacher quite a lot because uh, I teach high school and I teach seniors every year. And, and as a high school teacher, you know, we see these seniors go off to high school or go off to college, rather. And uh, we expect to never see them again. You know, they go to they go to college that that high school is over for them, you know, yet they return. And I, I would say that this is normal. You know, when I was uh, a college freshman, I, of course, went back to my old high school a couple of times just to see some of the teachers and check in on them. These teachers that have meant so much to me over the past four years. And also my mom worked at the high school, so I, I went back and saw her quite a lot, you know. But eventually, you know, you wean off of that, right? But something that I think a lot of teachers can, uh, you know, understand is there's always that one student, you know, who just keeps coming back <laughs> long after they should. And uh, I, I personally have not really experienced this yet, you know, but I think a lot of teachers can understand that. And, and my mom having taught seniors for many years, certainly has seen that, you know. They need to move on, right? And they keep on coming back to high school, and it's like just overstaying your welcome. Okay, you're, you're done. Move on. Go do something else, right? And I remember when I was in a, a senior in high school myself, okay? And it was the, it was the year of thinking like everything is behind me and everything is ahead of me. And we're done. And we'll never be this young again. And, and I had this particular group of friends that I hung around with quite a lot. And we were in this, um, oh God, we were in this performing poetry group. Even as a teacher now who has to read poetry and get kids excited about it, I know I'm, I, I feel like so geeky saying that. But I was, I was in this troupe. Uh, that was started by a theater teacher at Thompson High School called the Poetry Players. And we uh, got together and we, we went around the state writing and performing poetry. And we would perform other people's poetry. And it was uh, like we would perform Shel Silverstein. And we would go and perform for high school kids and middle school and elementary school kids. And, and uh, my little sister, Melinda, was in it too. So we were in it together. And I think we actually auditioned as a team. And I think we got cast based on the cute factor of that but uh so so we were in this team called the poetry players and you know i did it i guess because i really wanted to get to know this girl that was kind of cute that uh, you know so anyway and uh we became a really close group of folks during that uh, senior year of high school we would get uh you know a lot of fridays off to go around the state and perform and uh we performed at like the young authors conference and so it was, uh, it was quite a lot of fun, just this young group of kids who were just performing, you know, and uh, being creative together, you know. And it was a great uh, sense of community and, and, and probably the thing that led me to, uh, you know, uh, go and audition for a sketch comedy group when I was in, uh, uh, when I was in college. And, and, and I met a lot of my friends there who I still know today. So it was probably a pretty good, you know, inciting incident for my life, right? Look at me, I'm being nostalgic. <laughs> but the poetry players, uh, when we had our last show in April 
uh, right before I graduated. It was a very sad day because we realized we would probably never see each other again. And so we decided to have this uh, nice blowout party night, you know, and I think we went bowling and we wanted to talk about where we were going to go eat. And we noticed that we were right next to a Chuck E. Cheese, okay? So you know Chuck E. Cheese, or if you're far in the future, if you are completely not in the know, Chuck E. Cheese is this chain of family restaurants. And they have uh, arcade machines, and, and they have, like, this rat as, like, their mascot or whatever. And uh, they were very popular in the 80s and early 90s for having this uh, stage show of mechanical animals called the rock of fire explosion the the curtain would open up and uh they would play like um you know happy birthday songs and and stuff like that if if it was your birthday it was a very popular place to go on your birthday was to go see the rock of fire explosion at chuck e cheese and i've talked about in the past how when i was a very little kid and i used to go every year for my birthday which is something you look forward to all throughout the month of september when when my birthday was uh i got trapped behind the curtain at a rock of fire explosion concert because i wanted to go backstage and meet the band i guess and uh they you know it's very creepy because uh they shut off and it's all dark back there and they just look at you with those lifeless puppet eyes and i guess now that's uh, kind of the uh inspiration for five nights at freddy's you know that game but anyway so i had a lot of great memories or at least i guess i thought i did uh back when I was 18 years old going to Chuck E. Cheese and, and we were all kind of sharing those same memories. Oh my God, you remember Chuck E. Cheese? You know, we were being like, I'm sure really annoying 16, 17 and 18 year old teenagers who thought that they had lived enough life to have nostalgia and not really remember realizing, I think that this is like the best that their life is ever going to get. <laughs> I, you may, that's, putting it harshly you know but uh, it's true when you're in high school and you you know that's kind of the last of your obligation in the last time you really have this moment in your life where nobody really expects anything from you other than just be to be a teenager you know so we decided to go to Chuck E. Cheese and we walked in the door and it was a really crowded night and there, there were all these kids running around and uh it was messy and loud and uh you know and and I don't, I don't know. I think that was past the time of the rock of fire explosion, but this waitress comes up to us immediately and says, you guys got to get out. And she didn't even like want to hear our explanation for it. We're like, what are you talking about? We, we'd like to eat. We'd like a table for six. She comes over and says, no, boy, nah, uh, 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 uh. we're like, why not? It's like, cause you guys don't have kids with you. We're like, what are you talking about? We have to have kids to eat here. And they're like, yeah, this is a family restaurant. We don't allow people in here without kids. You know, (laughs) and there was a police officer in there also who was like looking at us suspiciously. And I guess I figured that they probably had this problem a lot with people walking in there like teenagers wanting to just eat like ironically. Look at us. We're eating in a kid's restaurant. We're playing the goofy games. We're diving in the, you know, pit full of balls. I don't know. I guess they had that problem a lot and, and they don't allow people to eat in there who don't have children, which I guess also keeps out, you know, pretend, potential, I don't know, perverts and things like that. I'm, I'm sure they have a problem with that as well, but it seemed like there was a major security risk in Chuck E. Cheese all of a sudden. And it, it was the first time I think I ever realized 
when I was 18 years old, about a month before I was going to graduate high school, I was there with the poetry players at Chuck E. Cheese. That's why you can't go home again. You're not welcome there. There are certain places you age out of and you just have to deal with it and move on and let the memories be the memories. Yeah, it's that feeling of driving by by your uh, old house. You know, I was in uh, driving around the uh, city the other day with my wife, and she realized that we were a couple of blocks away from where she um, she lived when she was a teenager. So we drove by her old house, and uh, she she completely almost missed it. Actually, the 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 siding had been been redone; it had been repainted. They had put up. Uh, new landscaping it's almost totally unrecognizable you know and we just sat out there and she wanted to take a couple of pictures to send to her dad so we did but I I kept having the sinking feeling that the people who lived there were going to come out and tell us to go away right because she's not welcome there anymore even though she grew up in that house know she had buried a dog in the backyard which she probably thought wasn't there anymore because they had re-landscaped the backyard and probably dug up the dog you know you know there's this house somewhere out in moody alabama where i spent my childhood ages six to ten and i haven't been in that house in, in years and i i will never go in that house ever again i'm not welcome there anymore you know so all I've got are my memories, which are fading a little bit more and more each day. This is really happy music for this topic. You know, when I was out of college for a couple of, uh, you know, for a couple of years, I began to substitute teach high school because, uh, I needed to make a little bit of extra money and I didn't have a criminal background. So I I could go and substitute teach and you got like 60 bucks a day to do it. You know, and you do that five days a week. You're kind of making a living at that point. So I started substitute teaching and, uh, it's the, what eventually led to me, you know, getting a master's degree so that I could teach, which I is what I do today. But I used to substitute teach uh, in Shelby County where I where I graduated and, and I would go to some of my old schools quite a lot. You know, Oak Mountain Elementary School, Middle School, High School. I would go to these places, Pelham High School. And I would walk these halls that I had walked for, you know, four years and just go around and see some of my old teachers and um I remember seeing uh, my old uh, physical science teacher, Mr. Cotter. Yeah, that's right. We all called him, of course, you know, Mr. Cotter. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder how many other people out there had a uh, teacher named Mr. Cotter. But uh, it was totally weird because, you know, when I went back, uh, he had shaved off his head. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if he'd, like, become a swimmer or something like that. But he had a shaved head, completely looked different. I, I missed him kind of like my wife missing uh her teenage house 
I was going by all the teachers' rooms, and I saw the name Mr. Cotter on the uh, on the door. That's the only way that I knew that I was that was Mr. Cotter. That was him. That was my physical science teacher in the tenth grade. You know, and I went up and talked to him because he he was a really great teacher. And he, even though I I did terrible in his class, I, you know, he was a he was a genuinely good guy. One of those uh, teachers that inspires you. Why are, while you don't have any idea what he's talking about, you know, he used to take these little dollar bills and he, he used to make little shirts out of them. And one day I had to go and see him after school about something. And I just found him sitting alone in his classroom after the bell rang. He could go home, but no, he's just sitting there alone practicing his little dollar bill t-shirts. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm subbing at Pelham high school one day and I go up and see Mr. Cotter and it takes him a minute to, to remember me because it had been about six or seven years since he had had me as a student. And I tell him what I'm doing. He asked me what I'm up to. I said, I graduated college, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm graduated. I'm out there. And he's like, so what are you doing subbing? And I said, well, I'm just making some extra money. And he's like, well, why don't you get a career? You're out of college. You did it. You made it. Why don't you get a career? And he made me realize that, you know, I think the reason I'm subbing is not so that I can make some extra money. Honestly, you know, I was waking up every morning at 530 to drive to schools that were 20 or 30 miles away. I lived in downtown Birmingham at the time. You know, why didn't I sub at schools in Birmingham? Why did I have to drive all the way out to the suburbs to do it? And I think he made me realize I was doing it purely for nostalgia. I wanted to return to this place of my youth, not as a follower, but as a leader, you know, and I subbed a little bit after that, but then I gave it up because it just was too much. And uh, it was kind of one of those moments where I just realized, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm letting nostalgia rule my life a little bit too much right now. I think that's what's happening. some of these things uh, from the 2018 or the 1918 pandemic just trying to find some parallels there's uh, this uh, article in the Washington Post about how people wore masks in 1918 during the flu pandemic but they were uh, they were like totally useless here's a picture here of a couple of, of like a train conductor wearing a mask like telling people that they could can't get on the train because like one of them's not wearing a mask or whatever so yeah, I'm looking at some of this. Um, apparently people in, uh, there was like this, uh, crime epidemic during this pandemic in 1918. Cause people were like taking the, taking the opportunity. And I was wondering, I I'm surprised this hasn't happened yet. People were using like these masks to blend in with the crowd. And then they would go in and like rob banks and things like that. So, like, that's what I was thinking is that, like, how do how do stores know that they're not getting robbed by people walking in wearing masks? You know, do they just look for the people wearing masks who are also holding these, you know, big canvas bags with a money sign on it? I don't know. How does that work? And apparently uh, also in this article, it says a woman taking a train from Chicago to Pasadena, California, repeatedly experienced a break from sanity when she disembarked 
and beheld the masked city. Uh, going into the city, apparently seeing like just uh, everybody wearing masks and being just shocked by it. I love that. That may be the title for this episode. Behold the Masked City. nice evening though here in uh birmingham cool outside actually i've been having just cool days like it, it hasn't been that uh normal wet humid weather that you get this time of year in alabama and i don't know if that's due to the uh you know pandemic or whatever i know there was a lot of talk of there's less people on the road so there's not as much pollution and that could be uh, affecting the overall patterns of the earth I, I don't know. All, all I know is that it, it's been feeling amazing out here lately, here in Alabama. So, um, yeah, but good to have you here tonight. Um, yeah, last night uh, wrapped up kind of a big thing, something that's been really big the past uh, two or three months or so, and it was the last drive-in on Shutter hosted by Joe Bob Briggs. I've talked about Joe Bob Briggs plenty in the past. He's probably, you know, aside from Gene Shepard, he's probably the number one influence uh, on on my podcast, on this, on the Midnight Citizen show. Um, unlike Gene Shepard, uh, Joe Bob Briggs has never been a radio personality. He's never been that guy coming to you in the night over the airwaves talking about things. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs was always on television and um, was a writer, just like Gene Shepard was a writer. Uh, but Joe Bob Briggs uh, began in the early 80s as the pseudonym of John Bloom, a, uh, an investigative reporter from uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, John Bloom created the Joe Bob Briggs persona to uh, review drive-in movies because he... Uh, thought that drive-in movies were uh, a very important part of American culture, uh, a place where people gathered to watch movies that they enjoyed, but the critics necessarily didn't necessarily enjoy. As a matter of fact, the critics snubbed them, you know, you know, but he, he sees a certain culture uh, around B movies, about drive-in movies, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, Z grade flicks, you know, he sees an important culture around them. And we definitely have that today. There, there's uh, certainly a gigantic community that is built around watching these types of drive-in movies. And, and Joe Bob Briggs uh, has uh, become the patron saint of that these past few years because uh, after many years of just being in total obscurity and, and by his own admission being broke, uh, Joe Bob Briggs was asked by Shudder, which is owned by AMC, American Movie Classics, uh, to host this show called The Last Drive-In, which is a, essentially a reiteration of his 
drive-in theater on the movie channel in the 80s and 90s, and then, of course, TNT Monster Vision in the 90s. Uh, he would come on and uh, host movies, usually a double feature. And he would show these movies, and then he would give drive-in totals, like how many dead people are in this movie, how many you know breasts are in this movie, and how many beasts, you know, monsters, and 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 he would just chalk it up, and 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 then he would give a rating out of four stars, and then he would show the movie, and he would come in at commercial breaks, you know, interstitially, and talk about the movie, and give you information and facts, and of course, as an investigative researcher uh, and a reporter, uh, Joe Bob was just a uh, an incredible font of information. Uh, he interviewed countless amounts of writers, directors, actors, and actresses, uh, you know, makeup effects artists over the course of his career. And uh, all I can say is that Joe Bob Briggs, when he goes, uh, a lot of this history will be lost. And, 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 and when he created, when John Bloom created this character back in the eighties, he realized that nobody else was really doing this. There were a couple of people out there on the fringes collecting information about drive-in movies. But for the most part, nobody really cared because drive-in movies are not like indoor movies or not like multiplex movies or what he would call indoor bullstuff movies, you know. Uh, drive-in movies are made to uh, turn a quick buck. Uh, they're made for very specific niche audiences who enjoy exploitative elements. Um, for the most part, they're, they're, they're made to be forgotten. But uh, again, there just seem to be this amazing and dedicated uh, community of people that have sprung up that enjoy these movies. And, uh, and, and in the early 80s, John Bloom was beginning to notice that. So... He invented the Joe Bob Briggs persona, you know, to uh, popularize these movies and talk about them and catalog them and research them and write about them. And he's done a great service uh, for pop culture, you know, and has certainly influenced a lot of filmmakers as well, you know, who love these movies and want to make movies of their own. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but, uh, but yeah, Joe Bob Briggs, though, um, began hosting movies on Shudder uh, in the summer of 2018, so two years ago. And he did a marathon. It was just supposed to be his, uh, like, just a one-time thing. That, that, that's why they called it The Last Drive-In. And I was there. I watched the marathon uh, with my friend Jason on his back porch uh, with cigars and beer, just like you're supposed to watch those movies, you know. And... Uh, as a matter of fact, we did not see the first two or three hours of the marathon because uh, it proved that Joe Bob had this like sleeper cell level fan base, this this dedicated group of people who just loved him so much and had been hiding in the shadows for years. And Shudder did not anticipate this much traffic around the show. And uh, and when the marathon started, uh, the servers completely crashed, and it was about three hours or so before they, you know, people were finally able to tune in. And it just became this uh, huge event, like uh, that was covered by all the media and uh, everything. And, and uh, so we we kind of knew halfway through that marathon that this is not going to be a one time thing. There's there's a there's an audience for this, you know. And we got excited about it. 
So Joe Bob came back and he, he you know, he hosted a marathon or he hosted a, a season last year and he hosted a season this year and he just finished up last night's season. So it's been a great time to be a Joe Bob fan and a fan of driving movies like I am, you know, and I don't always like the stuff that he shows. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people don't like some of the stuff that he shows. You know, there's this uh, Twitter community, which I, I kind of stay away from Twitter a lot of the times, but I am interested sometimes in what they have to say about the movies he shows. And uh, I think a lot of people who love Joe Bob remember growing up with him, like I remember growing up with him. And watching Monster Vision on Saturday night. And a lot of the movies that he showed were these mainstream movies, ironically, because they were what was in TNT's library. He would, uh, you know, show mainstream horror movies, big budget horror movies, like your Phantasm 2s and your, uh, your Poltergeist. You know, he would show these big movies and, and movies that anybody could go down to a video store and rent. But he would give commentary with them, and I think everybody really enjoyed that. Uh because he was making fun of movies that people knew. But now that the last drive-in is here and uh shutter is like a, it's a streaming app designed specifically for horror fans and uh, horror fans are weird. You know, they, they like weird twisted perverted types of movies. Okay. And needless to say that a lot of the movies that Joe Bob, showed uh, uh, on the last drive-in were quite polarizing. Some of them were very new horror movies, and, and a lot of people didn't like these new horror movies because they were like independent movies that nobody had ever heard of, but Shudder had the license to, so he showed them, I guess, to kind of promote them on the on the streaming app. But every single week... It was entertaining, but also a little disheartening to see people really lashing out at Joe Bob saying like, this is not the Joe Bob I remember. This is not, this isn't monster vision. This isn't the drive-in theater. You know, uh, why don't you show Friday the 13th? Why don't you show evil dead? This and that and that. And I just kind of looked at these people and I said, you, you have the wrong idea that Joe Bob is not doing this for nostalgia. He's not doing this to make you remember the great days of your youth where you didn't have any friends and all you did was stay inside and watch movies on Saturday night hosted by Joe Bob Briggs, you know. He's uh he's first and foremost a journalist and he's a he's a timekeeper of of horror movies. And horror movies are still very much alive and they're going on. And he's trying to keep them alive and he's trying to spread awareness about movies that people don't know about, not movies that people have seen a million times. So, so there was always this uh, bit of tension every week with Joe Bob, because you really didn't know what he was going to show. He never announced the movies before the actual show started on Friday night. People would tune in and, and immediately, you know, people would be really excited about Joe Bob and then his show would start and immediately like people started coming out of the woodwork to say how much they hated it <laughs> without even appreciating it. You know, see, I've been waiting for Joe Bob to come back for 20 years, you know, and I'm, I'm happy with whatever he can give me. I'm happy with it. OK, so uh, Joe Bob is uh, saluted and we we appreciate him so much. 
So yeah, but nostalgia though is uh, is one of those things though that is kind of uh, affecting horror movies greatly. And I'll talk about this really quick before we go to a music break. But uh, there's there's a little bit too much awareness, you know, in uh, in, in horror movies these days. Uh, too much self awareness, and I think it kind of started with that movie Scream back in uh, 1996, where you know all the kids were kind of aware that they were in a horror movie and they were aware of like the rules that you can't have sex or else you'll die and all that stuff, you know. And so Joe Bob showed some new movies, you know, on, uh, on the last drive-in. And a lot of these movies were, you know, made by people who have been inside watching horror movies most of their lives and not really having experiences of their own. You know, those experiences that inform original, unique storytelling you know, and there's a thing like this, like we all grew up, people my age, I think all grew up going to video stores and we all grew up surrounded by mountains of media and that media has greatly informed us and, and, and now people are making movies and it's, it's very easy to make movies now. You don't have to raise thousands of dollars anymore for a film camera. You know, you could just take your iPhone and film a movie and just throw in all these references to the horror movies that you love. And you know that your audience is going to love those references because they grew up watching the same stuff. And, and I've seen a lot of horror movies lately and some of them on the last drive-in where the people in them, uh, don't really have original ideas. They just are kind of relying on the things that they loved when they were growing up. And, and, uh, we need to get away from that. step away use the bathroom get a beer and in the meantime enjoy this music break I'll be back
truce to my lovers and all their sweethearts. May they never meet. With a Coors Light here. You call these like tall hands. Are these just called tall boys? Is that right? Yeah, tall boys. Brewed with 100% Rocky Mountain water since 1873. I hope they filter that water first. I don't care what kind of water you brew it with. Just make sure it's filtered, please. (laughs) So, oh man. Welcome back to the Midnight Citizen Show. With your host, Mike Booty. Hope you enjoyed that music break. We had a, a song that we played on the on the show before, a song called Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale from uh, the album What I Tell Myself. Yeah, I like that song. After that, we had Surfing Day, an instrumental. I always love playing surfing music this time of year during the summer. That was Marcos H. Balanos from Unchained Melodies, Volume 2. It's a concept album. Hope you enjoyed that music break. news to report that uh, the actor Ian Holm has uh, passed away Ian Holm is 88 years old and um, probably one of the most important uh, you know British actor in American movies Um, one of the most important I would say he's up there probably with like Ian McKellen and you know the the guy who played um, Picard Patrick Stewart, uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins, you know, just a very, one of these uh, big foreign import actors. Of course, he was uh, Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings. And the part that I know him for that I think uh, everybody loves him for, uh, Ash in uh, Alien. Obviously, very, very important actor, Ian Holm, dead at 88. Oh, man, I should make a... Should I make the tasteless joke? I don't know. I, You know, was he cremated? Because uh, there's footage of it. You just watch the movie Alien. You could see Effect Kodo frying his flesh off with a flamethrower. You know, because he's a robot in that movie. I don't know. Should I make that? Am I the most tasteless person on the internet right now <laughs> for making that? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna type it into Google and see if anybody's made that joke yet. Ian Holm cremated. Oh God. Uh, nope doesn't say anything nobody's made that joke on the internet according to uh google i am the most tasteless person on the internet for suggesting that ian holm was uh cremated much in the same way he was in the movie alien So, 
Yeah, no, I uh, want to say, uh, by the way, that uh, I have been working very hard to uh, bring you a new website for the Midnight Citizen show. It's at uh, MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. You can find it there. I've been working that uh, this week on archiving all of my old shows. Of course, all my, my old shows have been archived for quite a while now on uh, archive.org, but I've presented a... Uh, a sexy way, if you want to, if you want to call it that, to uh, to link to all the old shows so that you can actually see the show notes. When you go to archive.org, uh, you can just see you know the show and how long it is. You have no idea what that show's about. So now, if you go to uh, the Midnight Citizen Archive, which is at mikebooty.com/archive, you can actually see covers of all the old shows. It's called back issues. It's just like if you're looking through like an old rack of back issue magazines, you can see the covers. You click on those covers, they'll take you to the Overnight Scape Underground, where I've been hosting my show now for 10 years, onsug.com. And you can see all of those uh, old show notes and go ahead and just play right there on the Overnight Scape Underground. So check that out. I've also got an RSS podcast feed now. I'm up on iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, I think I'm up on Google Play Music, Podbean. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that you can download the Midnight Citizen show. Just go onto the uh, podcasting app of your choice and type in the Midnight Citizen. And uh, if I'm not on a podcast app that you like, then... uh, tough luck but go ahead and email me at mikebooty.com mikebooty at gmail.com and i'll make sure that i uh submit my rss feed and i can get up there so that you can download me okay Yeah, this uh, idea, I think the thing that I loved about Joe Bob Briggs is uh, being able to think about just watching television late at night. And uh, it's something that on demand has really taken away from us. You know, just the the idea of channel surfing. And you never know what you're going to land on. And, and, and that's why I uh, enjoy Sling. I like Sling. You know, it gives you a bunch of TV stations. You can, you can still flip and watch live TV and, and just that idea of hunting for something, you you never know what you're going to land on, you know, and I, I, I like that a lot. And it's something that I, I, I really do. I, I guess I romanticize it quite a bit, but when I think about being in high school, that's what I did a lot of was I just stayed at home and I, I channel surfed quite a bit. And when you couldn't find anything to watch, you would just land on the preview channel, which would just like kind of have this endless monotonous scroll of what was on television you just had it on just so that you could have the tv on and you wouldn't have to face the fact that you were alone <laughs> lonely teenager <laughs> and they would play trailers for like movies and you know at night they would play like trailers for like adult films that were playing on like the uh the scramble channels you know and things like that <laughs> so you know But, you know, Joe Bob was one of those things, you know, Monster Vision was one of those things that uh, would always 
you know, you'd have you had to know about Joe Bob in order to watch him because I remember on the preview channel and in the TV guide, you know, back in the late 90s when I was watching him, they would never tell you that Monster Vision was on. They would just tell you the name of the movie. So you never knew that he was hosting the movie unless you were like on that channel, you know. But yeah, it was quite a fun thing to just uh, stay up, though, in, in, in the late 90s and just watch television. You never knew what was going to come on, you know. A lot of times there would just be these really cheap movies that were just in the in the library of the TV station. And and there are a couple of... Um, there's still a couple of ways that you can kind of have this effect of landing on strange movies while you're channel surfing. Uh, one of them is, uh, is Sven Gooley, and Sven Gooley is on MeTV here in Birmingham, Alabama. He broadcasts out of Chicago... And, you know, he's this late-night horror host, a lot like Joe Bob Briggs, only he has an act, you know, he dresses up like kind of a count, like a Dracula or a ghoul or whatever. And he hosts horror movies, and he gives you facts about the movies and, and all that stuff. So, And lately, Sven Gulli, you know, the, is is doing shows in quarantine, so he's in this with us. You know, he, he does shows from his basement, and he just puts up a green screen behind him and tells you that he's in the uh, the, the ghoul cave or whatever. So I was watching that earlier tonight. They were showing a movie with Boris Karloff called uh, The Man with Nine Lives. So I was watching some of that. You know, I eventually got bored and I turned off the television. But it's nice to know that it's there. And that's the thing with nostalgia. You know, we always think about the things that we just always thought were going to be there. And the trick is just trying to appreciate every bit of our lives because it's, you know, everything that we have and everything that we enjoy makes us happy can just be ripped away from us at a second's notice. And then there's another channel called a Comet TV, which is on Sling, but it also airs here locally in Birmingham. And uh, Comet TV shows a lot of uh, old science fiction uh, and movies and horror movies late at night. But I, it, to be honest with you, like they were showing a, key, uh, a Godzilla marathon last Sunday. And I was like, this, this is fantastic. I'm just going to like chill out here on the couch and, you know, drink a little whiskey and just like zone out to uh, Godzilla movies. That's the only way I know how to watch a Godzilla movie. I've never seen one of those movies from beginning to end, <laughs> you know, cause they're all kind of the same probably have some Toho fans who disagree with me adamantly right now, but that's the way I feel about it. But, you know, honestly, Comet TV, though, is uh, unwatchable. And I'll tell you why. It's because they have these commercials, and the commercials are not the problem. I can deal with commercials, but they're all ads for victims of child abuse. And I don't want to downplay that. I'm glad that victims of child abuse are being advertised to and they're telling you to seek a lawyer and if you were ever in the boy scouts or the catholic church you know that's that's who they advertise to people who were abused by priests or scout masters but i guess they're all watching comet tv because like uh, it's like every time you watch comet tv it's like godzilla running into power lines for 20 minutes and then they cut and it's like 20 minutes of you know, victims of child abuse commercials. And it's, it's just unwatchable. I, it's, I can't watch it anymore. It's just painful. 
uh, it, it really brings the mood down, man. And I'm not trying to be smug about this or anything. Uh, but yeah, you don't want reality when you're being nostalgic and watching television at all. So as you know, I've been uh, following the past few weeks this whole thing with movie theaters and when they're going to reopen. And, you know, of course, my big monologue a couple of weeks ago was talking about would I be okay if movie theaters didn't survive? You know, because movie there's a lot of talk that movie theaters are really, this could be the year that determines whether or not they, they get to survive and stay open. And there's still a demand to go to leave your house and go, go see a movie in a theater. Kind of like, uh, I would say 2006 maybe was like the deciding year for, for, uh, video stores, you know, when Netflix started taking over and you no longer had to leave your house to go rent a movie. And so there's been some news this week about movie theaters reopening. Um, and how they're going to deal with this pandemic that is still, uh, as we've established, uh, still very much alive and still very much going on. So, so yeah, I, I got a couple of articles here. I'll just kind of look at um, the the two big chains that apply to Birmingham are uh, AMC and Regal Cinemas. So we'll we'll look at these. And since we're talking about the movies here, I'm going to have some milk duds here while I look at these uh, articles. I have some milk duds here. All right. I always like Milk Dodge when I go to movies. So AMC announced Thursday that it is set to reopen. It's more than 600 U.S. theaters next month. The company said it will begin a multi-phase reopening on July 15th, adding that it expects to be nearly fully operational by the July 24th premiere of Disney's Mulan. Um, they will not apparently be requiring their patrons to wear masks. Their staff will wear masks, but their patrons will not. They'll be opening the theaters to 30% capacity. It's really hard to eat milk duds and, and talk. <laughs> I should have known that. Well, usually when I'm eating milk duds, you know, I'm sitting in a movie theater watching a movie. I'm not talking like some of you guys. Rude, you know. <laughs> All right. So they're going to clean every theater between showtime, which is good. They should do that anyway. They're going to disinfect seating areas nightly using electrostatic sprayers. I think they should just do that between shows temporarily reducing menu selections at its concession stands. I'm not really sure what that's going to do. Uh, upgrading its ventilation systems in its theaters. Okay, that's good, but the whole thing about this is uh, this virus is airborne, so I, I, I again, don't understand how that's really going to help. Uh, requiring every AMC employee to wear a mask while in the theater. Okay, that's good. So AMC is opening back up. It seems like they're taking this uh, seriously, but again, I just don't know if I want to go and sit in a theater with people for two and a half hours 
with heavy ventilation and not wearing a mask. So, uh, Regal Cinemas came under fire this week for saying that they're going to reopen and they're not going to require anybody to wear a mask. And they quickly reversed that decision. Looks like I'm having trouble with the website here. But I read the, I read the article earlier, and uh, yeah, they reversed the decision. Now they're going to re- require you to wear a mask if you're in a Regal Theater. So they came under a lot of fire for that. So good, all right? Still don't know if I'm going to go to the movie theater. Um, you know, the other day I, I, I was beginning to ease out of quarantine a little bit, even though I shouldn't have. I, I got cabin fever. I got stir crazy. And I went out into the world, and, and I was starting to feel just this heaviness on my head because I realized that I hadn't gotten a haircut in uh, six months. I hadn't gotten a haircut since, like, the second day of January of this year, right before I went back to school. So I just said, I cannot do this anymore. So I booked a haircut at um, a place I'd never gone before who looked like they were taking safety measures kind of seriously. You know, and I went in there and it's kind of like this hipster barber shop a little bit. I hate to call it anything but, you know, but it, it was a little bit hipstery. You know, there, there's this whole hipster culture right now around uh, man styling and all that, but. But it was a nice, it was a nice barber shop. This guy cut my hair, and we talked the whole time about all this. And uh, you know, I went, I went and got my hair cut the other day, and it was nice. And I, I thought after I got my hair cut, you know, there would be nothing nicer right now than just to go to a movie. You know, it's a nice, you know, Wednesday afternoon. Just go out into the world and just go sit, sit in a dark room for a couple of hours and watch a movie. Of course, none of the theaters were open yet, but I thought even if they were, is that really something I would want to do? You know, I just spent 20 bucks on a haircut. Do I really want to go out and spend 20 bucks on a movie ticket? Uh, You know, when I could just walk around the park or or go home and put in a movie in my Blu-ray or I don't know. (laughs) So, yeah, I I got up and I I went up to uh, the Summit Shopping Center here in Birmingham and uh, I went to see my uh, my friend Jason. Who works at a, who works at a clothing store, and uh, they're still doing appointment only. You can't walk in there without an appointment. I guess if they don't have appointments, you can still walk in there. There just can't be any other customers in the store, you know. And Jason was having to wear a mask, and I had to put my mask on. And I just browsed around the store, and it was kind of nice just to have this thing. I, I never really go, go clothes shopping that much, but it was nice to be out in the world buying something physically, you know, from a brick-and-mortar store. And I bought, a, I bought a shirt. You know, he sold me a shirt. You know, it was nice. It's nice because over the past few months, all I've done is uh, I've bought stuff off of Amazon. That's where I've gotten all of my stuff, you know, and I've got a collection here of things that I bought from Amazon. Uh, This is an exciting show, let me tell you. (laughs) Things from Amazon here. Okay, so what do I have? Okay, this is the first thing. So for Christmas, my wife got me uh, this... Yeah, she got me this uh, shaving kit, all right? And this is one of those, like, uh, I've been shaving for years, always with shaving cream. But 
shaving soap is starting to come back in a big way. You know, and shaving soap is just this kind of thing that you get. It's like, you know, just you, you take this brush. You know, she got me a brush with it. You know, you wet it a little bit and then you just kind of like, I don't know, lather it up and then you put it on your face. And it's this remarkably wonderful experience. And it's made me look forward to shaving. I used to shave like two or three times a week and now I shave almost every day because I just love the experience of, uh, you know, it's very therapeutic to just kind of run your hands around in the shaving soap and get it up to a lather and put it on your face. And so she got me this and these are custom made brushes and uh and a razor uh handle that she got me for christmas and she got me this uh this company uh, they package everything in a perdomo box and a cigar box it's called soap alchemy boutique the initial thing she got me uh the shaving soap she got me was called tobacco and leather so yeah i love tobacco and i love leather so uh Back in March, I, I wanted to get a couple of different, uh, some new varieties of shaving soap just to sort of have this. And so that's what I did. I, off of Amazon, I got something from, I got a, a collection of sample soaps from the Chiseled Face Shaving Company. I believe they're based in um, Seattle, Washington. So they, they, they shipped me uh, just a whole bunch of, I think like 12 different little samples, little two ounce sample samples of shaving soap. And I've been just going back and forth using them. Um, so I've got like here, cedar and spice. What else? Sherlock, which smells like, I don't know. I guess that smells like Sherlock Holmes's office. Um, <laughs> I guess, uh, what else we got? We got, uh, we got Ghost Town Barber. I've actually almost used up all the Ghost Ghost Town Barber. Because, I mean, it just smells amazing. Uh, it, you know, they should really invent a, a microphone that can allow you to uh, transmit scents. Pine tar. I haven't used much of this at all. <laughs> uh, just not a sexy sounding name, but pine tar. Which smells like... Yeah, I mean, I guess that smells like bark. I don't know. Like of a pine tree. <laughs> what else we got here? We got Bay Rum. It's a nice tropical summer shaving soap. I haven't used any of that at all yet, actually. Let's set that aside for a second. Um, we got... Ooh, this is my favorite. Not really. My wife hates this one. Midnight Stag. <laughs> this smells like... If you were basically the the real life version of Leisure Suit Larry, this is what you would uh you would put on some midnight stag. Yeah. Put on your uh, Parisian night suit and hit the town. <laughs> midnight stag. Uh what else we got? Santa Paula, which I don't know anything about this one. I haven't used this one at all. You know, I, I definitely judge these shaving soaps by their names. Usually they have a good scent to them, but, you know, shaving soap and, 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 you know, any kind of thing that carries a scent with it is definitely power of suggestion. You know, you, you can get a good candle from Walmart, but they don't name their candles very well. Yankee Candle names their candles well, so that's why you were willing to spend, like, ten bucks more. 
Alright, this smells pretty good. Santa Paula. It smells like the Santa Ana winds blowing off of the Pacific Ocean. Trade winds. That smells like trade winds. Okay. What else? <laughs> Two more here. We got Summer Storm, which uh, I've I've used up almost all of Summer Storm. Yeah. Because uh, that smells, it just smells uh, kind of like you know, the ocean, kind of like low pressure air. I don't know. <laughs> and Cryogen, which smells like, can't open it now. It's stuck. Cryogen. I haven't used any of this. Yeah, that smells like uh, the T-1000 from the Terminator 2 when he gets um, frozen in liquid nitrogen. Okay, so there, there's my... I could write description. I could write ad copy for uh, for Chiseled Face. I'll tag them in the show notes and see if they take notice of my wonderful descriptions. So yeah, I'll, I'll put on some of this... Uh, I got... I got some water here so i'll do like a little bit of a sample a sample shave for any of those of you who are watching live or watching the video and i mean it's just a very relaxing experience if you've never shaved with uh, shaving soap before um so you get like a little bit of water just kind of wet your brush just the tip okay and then you just kind of like take it you know you, you put it in this uh shaving bowl if you got a coffee mug, a coffee mug will do. And, uh, you know, you just kind of run it around a little bit, lather it up, maybe get a little bit more water there. There you go. Shake it off. You don't want too much water because then it'll start to make it super liquidy and it'll just drip when you put it on your face, you know. But, yeah, it's it's nice. It's like a lather rather than a foam like you get with shaving cream. And shaving cream is just, you know, it's super quick. You just put it in your hand and, you know, you just put it on your face and uh, it, it causes burn. I have not gotten any kind of razor burn at all with this uh, shaving soap. So, yeah, I was telling my dad about this, that, that my wife got me this shaving brush and uh, shaving soap, and it's kind of changed my life in some ways, honestly. And my dad came out, and he actually gave me my great uncle's shaving brush and coffee mug. Uh, this shaving brush that had apparently been in my family for about four generations. And it's interesting, you know, because it's kind of like the way that, like, I don't know, your grandfather shaved or something. You know, this classical manly approach to uh, grooming yourself. So put it a little bit on it. Yeah. So there it goes. Yeah, it just feels amazing. Feels good. in there and uh clean that off later so yeah so i, I got those um chiseled face soaps from uh the chiseled face shaving company in seattle washington i think that's where they are so that that was something i bought off of amazon back in march it was good good purchase have a towel so i guess i'm gonna do the rest of the show with the shaving soap on my face so <laughs> all right so what else do we got down here what else did i get off of uh, amazon so i got i got some books um i've been having to do a lot of summer reading 
because I, I made a summer reading list for my students. And even though I've read some of these books before, I, I still find the need to read them so I can talk about them with the students when they come back in August. So they won't think I'm a hypocrite for signing them books and not reading them myself. So, yeah, I got like, uh, you know, Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton, which is something that I, I've talked about that on the show in the past. My favorite book from middle school. And reading it again as an adult, uh, it's good. It's just as good as I remember it. Uh, I had to read uh, The Comedians by Graham Greene, which was decent. It was, uh, you know, it's a book about Haiti in the 1960s under the rule of the dictator Papa Doc, Francis Papa Doc Duvalier. And I assigned this book to my students. I always put the, a plant on my summer reading list every year a book that the students will not read. And I tell them that you will not read this. This is just a challenge. Some of them read it anyway, because they want to, they want to take a challenge, you know? So it's good. It's reverse psychology, right? And then no country for old men by Cormac McCarthy. I got this off of Amazon as well. This is a good book. If you've uh, seen the movie, don't think that uh, you've seen the whole story. I'm very familiar with the movie. But the book actually has a lot more information in it that will add to your enjoyment of the movie. So I would definitely say check those books out. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Okay, so something else I got. Uh, ordered uh, these field notes. There's a company... Where's this company based? It just says made in the USA. But it is this American company and they make these little notebooks called field notes, which is, are designed to just, you know, you go out and you, you know, take notes that will help you in your life. And, and I've certainly found like writing is a much better way for me to commit things to memory you know, every month I actually do my accounting, handwritten. You know, I write out how much I owe and how much I'm owed in a book, you know. And I find that it's actually really useful because it, it commits things to your memory a lot more and it makes things a lot more urgent to you and stick in your mind than if you just put it on a computer. This may not work for everybody, but it works for me. And so I, I am uh, definitely a fan of writing things down and... uh I like this company, this field note company, because they, they make these really nice, just short books. They're 48 pages of just uh, blank paper and they're designed really well. I got this uh, national parks series. So we have here the Rocky mountain national park with like a, a buck on it. We have Buffalo on this Yellowstone national park book. And, and then I have a smoky mountains book, which I'm currently using. And I use the Smoky Mountains book to uh, just write down show notes, things that come to me during the week. And, you know, it's just uh, it's a really handy tool. And I like these field notes quite a lot. So, yeah, I got those off of Amazon, too. It took them like three weeks to get to me, too, though. I mean, I, I ordered these and it took them three weeks to get to me because I, I ordered them in the height of the quarantine when Amazon was only really putting priority on very essential items. And so I guess this was not that essential, these field notes, but, you know, I just wanted to get them. So, And yeah, and then I got, uh, I got, I got some nice uh, gift cards, some Amazon gift cards from students at the end of the year. So I took those gift cards and compiled them. 
And I, I got something that I've been wanting for quite a long time. I, I got I got a cigar humidor. <laughs> you know. Something you put your cigars in and it, it, it seals the air and it, uh, it it keeps the cigars, you know, at a nice humidity. Am I saying that right? Is that what a humidor does? I don't know. I just know that I, I enjoy cigars and, uh, and you're supposed to keep them in a humidor. Okay. Let's see what this thing is. <laughs> Cause I got it. You know, I thought, I thought you just put the cigars in it, but no, it turns out there's like a whole process that you have to prepare. You have to do before you uh, prepare your, uh, your humidor for cigars. So let's see what we got here. I don't even know what brand I ordered anything like that. Put in my Amazon password. Yeah, I got this. Uh, it's called a, uh, Prestige Import Group Chalet Sherry Cigar Humidor. Holds 25 to 50 cigars, which is good. Right now I've got about uh, 20 or so cigars in there. Completely lined with the finest genuine Spanish cedar. A hygrometer and humidifier included. So I've got this little uh, temperature gauge that tells me. Like right now it's... uh, 60, 60 degrees in there. Is that right? In the hydrometer, a scratch resistant felt bottom. Yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, it is, I did have a need for this. I didn't just buy it because it's something that like somebody told me that I need to have. Okay. So like the idea is that I get these cigars and I, I get quite a lot of them. I get them online and you know, you'll get like, I enjoy getting these like uh, Koneko cigars, which are like 20 of these for, for $20, which you can't beat. And then I enjoy getting some nicer cigars along with the order, like these Rocky Patel edges. Okay. And then you put them in a box and the idea is like, you can't really have them sitting out in like your, your apartment where the temperature is just so crazy. You need to have them in like a box where the temperature can regulate itself, you know, and stay at a constant nice temperature. Otherwise the cigars will, you know, lose, uh, their flavor and they can, when you, when you go to light them or, or cut them, you know, they'll, they can crack and break and you don't want that. Cause then that's like a lot of money out the door. Cause cigar smoking is not a cheap hobby by any stretch of the imagination, you know? So yeah, I got, I got this uh, cigar humidor. Um, and the company once again is called prestige import group. And it's a, uh, it's a highly rated and very inexpensive humidor. I got it for $30 on Amazon. So yeah, that, those are the things that I've been buying off of, um, Amazon while in quarantine, you know, trying to take things seriously, but also just being in here. And, and what, what all these things have in common? This is another thing I wanted to talk about tonight. All of these are very manly things, right? You got your shaving soap, you got your humidor, you got your uh, cliffs notes to keep your, to keep track of your man life, you know? There's this just interesting obsession that I think uh, we have lately with uh, returning to this state of manhood because uh, it seems like we've lost something along the way where 
people in my generation, they grew up uh, playing video games, and those video games like matured with them. And, and a lot of the stuff that we have today, the entertainment that we have today, are really just new incarnations of the stuff that we loved when we were kids. And, and there's certainly um, the illusion, I think, of arrested development when it comes to thinking about men, you know, in their 20, 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but there seems to be this thing in culture right now where we're trying to bring back the American man, right? So I'm surrounded here with a bunch of stuff that I bought on Amazon, not knowing that I'm trying to reinvent myself, I guess, as like a man or something. I don't know. (laughs) You know. I don't know if this version of the American man ever really existed, you know. Uh, we kind of had these visions of what it was like, what these men were like in the 30s, you know. I don't know. The way that they boxed, you know, putting one hand out to block and one hand in to punch. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And there's this podcast I listen to from time to time called The Art of Manliness, which is uh, sort of bringing back that thing of, you know, men have a code and men can do things, you know, if they're tired, they get a flat tire, they can fix it. You know, uh, they, they can make their own gifts. They don't buy their own gifts. You know, you can make it, you know? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's something that I am aware of. Of I mean, did that, did that idea of the man ever really exist or is it just kind of, you know, we're individuals and we all, you know, we have this, uh, vision of like Teddy Roosevelt who, uh, is sort of the model for the man at the turn of the 20th century. He was a guy who hunted and, you know, he, he volunteered to go and lead the rough riders when he didn't have to, you know, and he was a camper and a tramper and a, and a president and a naturalist. And he could read three books before you woke up in the morning. You know, we, you know, I think there's this thing of like how men have lost this, DIY equality and we're trying to bring that back and uh, there's a bunch of companies that seem to be getting pretty fat on that notion (laughs) I don't know well let's uh, take a break here for a minute so I can go clean the shaving soap off of my face and uh yeah while we do that let's take a trip down the video street video store got some good videos lined up for you tonight so enjoy this and i will be back in about 10 minutes hi i'm robert lee i own coleman liquidation i sell mobile homes i'm not gonna waste your time i'm gonna tell it just like it is these are mobile homes not mansions They come in two pieces. If that's what you're looking for, that's what I got. They're used. Some of them have stains. We cover that up. She decorates them. She sells them. These guys help me move them. A bouncer in Birmingham hit me in the face with a crescent wrench five times. And my wife's boyfriend broke my jaw with a fence post. So if you don't buy a trailer from me, 
it ain't gonna hurt my feelings. So come on down to Coleman Liquidation and get yourself a home. Or don't. I don't care. swinger. What can I say? such a little thing as a felt marker cause an accident? Or a red umbrella? Or a green umbrella? Well, filing cabinets aren't like doors. They don't swing at all. They're square. Just sit there and slide in and ouch. us to lifting.
chairs are harmless. They roll, they swivel, and they tilt. They swivel, they roll, and they tilt. Now, would anyone believe that a pencil could cause an accident, a sharp one? Accidents will happen. But like most advice, office safety isn't taken too seriously. Still, it would be nice if it were. You might call office safety common sense, thinking one step ahead, considering the consequence of your action. a simple act, such as reading the label or instructions on the instrument you're using, such as this one. Do not use on electrical fires. Or use the handrail. Or caution men at work. safety isn't really a joke. Each year, thousands of people are injured and crippled and occasionally even killed in senseless accidents. Oh, it's true, statistically, that offices are relatively safe places in which to work. But accidents can and do happen, even there. And they happen in just the empty-headed, careless way that we've just seen. All right? So what do we do about it? Well, we can start by understanding that accidents occur when someone simply doesn't realize that their action or lack of action could prove hazardous. We drop a pencil on the floor. We, we forget to pick it up, or, or maybe somebody else drops a pencil on the floor and we don't do anything about it. It, it seems so trivial. Well, that's what accident rates are made of, trivial things. And you know, with with just a little bit of extra effort, accidents could practically be eliminated. A moment to read signs and instructions. A moment to pick up loose objects. Or at best, two moments to report them. A moment's pause to avoid setting booby traps. This is really all it takes. A moment of your time and the exercise of your good judgment.
was surprisingly tame video for the sexist 60s. No, they were definitely calling them secretaries. Look at this pretty young thing. And uh, uh, it's a scene where I think the manager tripped over the secretary and ended up on top of her for comedic effect. She also stabbed her boss with a pencil. That was pretty brutal. He had like a newspaper in front of him and they said even pencils can be surprisingly harmful and dangerous objects and she like just runs right into her boss and he's just got this look on him ah! like he's been gutted like a fish. Welcome back to the Midnight Citizen Show. That was a trip to the Video Street Video Store, our weekly sojourn. Down to a place where we watch fun videos from the past. Before you and Office Safety, we had the uh, a commercial for uh, Coleman li- uh, Lumber Liquidation out in Coleman, Alabama. Uh, that, that commercial got a lot of uh, viral play a few years ago done by a local ad company in uh, Birmingham for making these just really honest commercials, you know, going out there. This may not be the best trailer you ever got, but if you need one, it'll do. There's stains on it, but we'll paint over it. I once got knifed in a bar fight in Birmingham. So if you ain't, if you don't buy a trailer, you ain't going to hurt my feelings, you know? So, that's pretty funny. I actually did meet somebody one time who got in a bar fight. It was when I was doing jury duty, and uh, one of the guys on the uh, in the jury pool with me was talking about how he'd been in a bar fight. He actually made it onto the jury, and I didn't, uh, because the uh, the case was it was a capital murder case where the guy had uh, the defendant had killed a guy. in in a fight he claimed it was in self-defense so i guess they needed somebody with a bar fight experience on their uh, on their sheet i want to say by the way last week at the uh, video street video store I, i played for you this um teenage anti-sex video or it was like a sex education video from the 80s called how do i know if i'm really in love and 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 uh this commercial uh or this video starred uh jason and justine bateman but it also had ted danson in it and uh you know celebrities especially big ones that ted danson was a big star at the time this video was made he was on cheers which was the highest rating rated show on television they have a long history of showing up in these videos and it's usually for community service. And I thought it was a rumor. I thought it was just like a goofy, somebody just being goofy saying that Ted Danson did that for community service, but no, he actually did. He started in this video, this, uh, teenage sex education video in the late eighties called, how do I know if I'm really in love? Because he had like a number of unpaid parking tickets in Los Angeles. So the court ordered him to go and, be in this video so you can watch that whole video online how do i know if i'm really in love on youtube so (laughs) 
And with that being said, let's take a trip down to Viscaga, Alabama, along the banks of the Cahaba River. It's been a radical week down there. This week, we're going to continue a story that we began last week about Jim Keating. Young kid in his early 20s, just out of uh, getting his bachelor degree. And recently broken up with from his uh, girlfriend, Riley. Having nothing to do during the long summer days in Viscaga, but sit around and wait for Riley to come back. Wait for a school to hire him on as a teacher. Wait for an acceptance letter to graduate school. He lives in the basement apartment of one Miss Garcia, who is currently out of town at the moment and visiting her sister in Gulf Shores. Uh, The mostly empty house prompts Leland Wexler, a volunteer member of the Citizen Patrol in Viscaga, to stop by one morning and ask Jim is all well at the house. Of course, he didn't know that Jim was there at the house. He didn't notice that Jim's car was parked around the back, and Wexler was just making sure that no one could come around and rob them because there had been a, a string of robberies in the neighborhood lately. Jim just thought of Wexler as a nuisance, and he shooed him off and then went back to his long day of waiting. And at 2 o'clock in the morning that day, that morning, Jim was woken up by a screaming on the TV. He woke up to a strange movie with a man in a business suit and a guitar slung around his shoulder and acting like more of a preacher than a rock star. The guy on the TV was kind of like a rock star messiah, and it was tranquilizing to Jim. Nevertheless, the screeching of the movie and the piercing blue light wreaked havoc on Jim's weary eyes, and he turned the TV off, thinking nothing more of it as he drifted back off to sleep. The next day, Jim couldn't get the movie out of his head. He wanted to find out what it was, but the guide only said that it was paid programming, which confused him. It was definitely a movie of some kind, so he went down to the Video Street video store where the geeked-out clerk behind the counter, Maureen, for once couldn't help him. She knows that all there is to know about movies, even publishes her own popular fanzine called Movie Mad and Psychotic, but she couldn't help him when he described the movie to her. She did suggest, however, that she check with a guy named Sully, who's basically a shut-in, He lives in his house all day taping TV for various religious watchdog groups who help people who get screwed out of money. So Jim takes off for Sully's, fighting with his car along the way, which is a beat-up old Dodge that Riley's disapproving father sold him last summer, which won't crank on the first turn of the key and takes some doing. Along the way to Sully's house, he meets up with Shauna at an intersection where he's stopped. Shauna pulls up in in the next to him, She's in the passenger seat with a guy who can't keep his hands off her. And she's a radical kind of girl and ends up asking Jim, can she jump in with him? Maybe give her a ride back to her house. Together, they head over to Sully's. Shauna agrees to do that because she's got nothing else going on. But she gets freaked out by the shut-in named Sully's creepy collection of childish memorabilia from the 50s including a recreated down-to-the-square-inch mock-up of Sully's bedroom from when he was five years old. Sully brought Jim into the room that was full of movies and videotapes where he taped TV endlessly, and he showed Jim the tape of Channel 6 at 2 a.m. from the night before, and the movie was not there. It was not a movie the movie Jim was looking for, and 
increasingly become obsessing, obsessed by. Instead, it was just a paid programming kind of a thing. Um, a preacher sitting in front of a television asking for money. So as it turns out, the movie didn't appear on Sully's feet at all. So Jim is obviously confused by this. And we're going to pick up with him after he drops Shauna off. And Shauna asks Jim to come into the house. But Jim sees it as a bad idea. And he knows that it'll be a mistake to go in with somebody else so soon after Riley's broken up with him. And he gets in his car. Instead of taking the right turn out of Shauna's neighborhood, Jim took the left. Taking a right meant going back into town, going home to the sad basement apartment, lifeless and dim, collapsing in the clutter of dirty dishes and reruns, giving up, waiting for another day to pass. No, Jim, everything that's right is wrong. So he jerked the old car left toward I-65 and from there on to Birmingham. It had been more than a year since he'd been in the city. That day had been graduation day at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Jim and Riley sitting in their green and gold in Boutwell Auditorium, stealing glances at each other across the room from their alphabetized post, grins that said, I can't believe we made it, and waiting patiently in their caps and gowns for their names to be called. Jim was perhaps a little more patient than Riley that day, because he had no idea really what would come after this. All he knew was that Riley was coming home with him to Viscaga, and she would trust him to know what to do after that. She had trusted him a lot back then, even if her family didn't. She had trusted him that it was justified to stand up to his family, this family of hers. He had said to her, you're a grown woman now. If you can graduate college, which is something that is statistically improbable in today's society, then you can make whatever damn decision you want to make. And then he gave her the coup de grace, which now made him cringe every time he thought of it. He said, you don't owe your family anything. Nice going, Jim. What a thing to say to a girl who trusted you. A girl whose family put her through college and paid for her apartment and covered her every credit card transaction. What kind of a jerk brings her out of all that and back to Viscaga, a place of dead-end jobs at stores called the Shoe Stampede, and a social scene that consisted of Little League baseball games, church picnics, and cow tipping. The only logical thing he had done in that whole ill-conceived endeavor of moving back home was to get them a place that wasn't under his parents' roof. Of course, the prospects were slim in Viscaga, and it was either a quarter of a million dollar ranch house or a trailer park. After a few weeks of looking, they settled for the best option in between, the basement abode of Miss Garcia, which came with a full kitchen and use of the washer-dryer two days a week. And there they had settled and set, while Jim sent out applications to schools, and Riley sent out applications to clinics, and they waited for their lives to begin. Now, a year later, Jim was back in Birmingham, a place where he once lived and knew people, and in which he always felt miscast, like he should be in better shows, and would be someday. Hell, everyone he'd known had felt the same way. It's just that now he was back, and they were gone. Birmingham was a town of ghosts. As he turned off the interstate, his body seemed to take over for his wandering mind. It steered his hands on autopilot down the avenues and boulevards, coasting through the greater metro area. When he pulled into a visitor's space in the parking lot of the TV station, it took him some time before he remembered why he had come here to the top of Red Mountain, NBC to the left of him, CBS to the right, and antennas towering over him like great steel monsters. When he finally came to and ambled inside, he was slow, 
like his skeptical mind was sure that nothing would come of this, and that this was almost definitely a distraction from the more immediate problems in his life. But when he saw the receptionist look up at him and smile, he smiled too. Maybe this was worth something after all. Marine had laughed, and Sully was clueless. But this lady looked like she had answers. Welcome to Channel 6, she said. Can I help you? Hi, um, Jim said. I was watching TV last night, and you guys showed this movie real late, around 2 a.m. I just wanted to know what it was. No problem, let me just see. Then, Jim watched her pull out a thick binder with the Channel 6 logo on it and flip through pages. His spirit sank. This was just an internal copy of what was already in the guide. Yeah, she says. It says here, paid programming. Um, yes, it was called Peter Popoff's Miracle Healing Water. She looked up and smiled, expecting him to do the same. That's not a movie. I said I was watching a movie. Hmm. The lady rolled her eyes around in her head clicked her tongue, and pretended to think. That's not what it says here. Are you sure you were watching our channel? Yes, I'm sure. I fell asleep watching The Late Show, and when I woke up, Jim steadied himself. Is it possible you guys have different programming, like go out to different parts of the viewing area? I live in Viscaga. No, I don't think so. I don't understand them, because you see, I definitely saw something on our channel last night. It was an old black and white movie from the 60s about a preacher with a guitar. Do you know the name of it? No, I don't know the name of it. If I knew the name of it, I wouldn't be here. The lady's smile dropped from her face. I'm sorry, Jim said. Look, can I talk to your manager? The station manager? Uh, no, I'm afraid that's not possible. Why not? Because it just isn't, she said. He doesn't answer questions about our viewing schedule. That's why we put it in this programming guide. What about hackers? I'm sorry? Hackers, you know, they hijack your antenna and send out their own feeds. Is that possible? No, I'm afraid it isn't. Well, how do you know? Maybe I can talk to one of your engineers. Jim stepped around his de her desk and peeked down the hall, where there was a busy newsroom of people and, and ties running back and forth, hands full of papers and clipboards and tapes for broadcast, urgent business. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to not walk any farther. Can I talk to one of them, one of your engineers? No, you cannot. Look, if there was some kind of interference with the feed, then I would know about it. You see this phone? Every day I get hundreds of calls from viewers about the smallest detail of our broadcast. I get calls about the hairstyles of the news anchors, angry people who don't like us superimposing a severe weather map over their NASCAR. Shoot, I even got a call once about a fly that wouldn't move off a lady's TV. If there was a problem with last night's programming, I would know about it, because somebody would have called in by now. But I'm here. I'm calling in about it. Can't you see that? Yes, and you're the only one. I'm sorry, but if it's not in our guide, then you didn't watch it on our channel. Disheartened, Jim left the building, feeling the cold eyes of the receptionist watching him go. He walked back to his car, and again, he thought of next steps. There had to be next steps now. He wasn't in Viscaga anymore. He had come too far, and there had to be next steps. Finding a napkin and a broken pencil in his glove box, he began to make a list, mulling over in his mind every video store in Birmingham he knew, every second-hand pop culture merchant and thrift store, every bookstore with a video section and a geeked-out clerk who he could talk to. When he stopped writing, he thought of the lonely basement apartment of Miss Garcia, who was still in Gulf Shores and wouldn't be back until next week. 
He thought of the cold pizza in the fridge and the two bottles of rolling rock he had left and the tepid water in the inflatable pool. And he looked at his rich wristwatch and saw that it was now four o'clock time for judge Judy endlessly being interrupted by Alex Trebek shilling for colonial pen. Then he found a second wind of motivation and wrote down some more stores. When he was finished, he propped his napkin list up on the dash and he turned the keys. Nothing. Just a cough from the engine and then silence. He turned the keys again and still nothing. By now he had come to expect this, but this time it was more urgent. This business with the crappy Dodge Riley's uncle had sold him last summer was keeping him from his day's destiny, and the hot sun beating down on him wasn't helping either. He hadn't needed the battery fan since dropping off Shauna, the fast winds sweeping by him on the interstate before enough being enough to keep him cool. But now, in the shadeless parking lot of the TV station, he desperately searched the car for it. He realized quickly that Shauna must have taken it. Whether it was on purpose or accidental didn't matter. It was hot. He admitted defeat and opened the door for air. Then he took the keys out of the ignition and waited five seconds. Then he put the keys back in and turned. Success. The engine sputtered to life. Maybe, he figured, the car just needed a sneak attack, like hunting an animal, camouflaging yourself in the brush and making it think you were gone. Jim had no idea why he'd conjured that analogy. He'd never been hunting a day in his life. Relieved, he closed the door, rolled down the window, and headed down the mountain and into the suburban sprawl outside Birmingham. He began with the chain video stores first, his hopes low as these places mostly carried the new releases before they retired them from the gallery, then the previously viewed sales racks. What classics they did have were the ones everybody knew. The Alfred Hitchcocks and the David Leans, Singing in the Rain and Bringing Up Baby, the usual suspects. He drove from movie gallery to movie gallery, blockbuster to blockbuster, into the one Video Express still left out on Valley Del Road. Leaving his car running, he sprinted inside the stores and through the aisles of tapes, not knowing what he was looking for. Just a picture of the preacher with the guitar, maybe, or some other missing visual piece that fit his part of the puzzle. There was nothing. Mostly, he skipped talking to the clerks, who were just there as a job and apt to ignore his plea and robotically suggest whatever multiplex bullshit was a new release that day. But sometimes he asked them, the ones who were pale and skinny, or pale and fat, with disheveled hair and weird tattoos, who looked like they'd been inside most of their lives. Channel 6, 2 a.m., he told them. Channel 6, 2 a.m. They had no idea either. They just asked him if he'd checked the guide, and Jim restrained his frustration each time, saying nothing as he exited the store. He hit up the second-hand stores that sold videos next, the thrift shops with more ragged clothes and soiled tennis shoes and the gimmicky broken exercise equipment of 20 years ago than pop culture. Still, he searched frantically, his eyes scanning the messy rows of tapes, uncategorized and thrown around, their labels fading and in some cases, just empty boxes. Why would somebody steal a 50-cent videotape? Jim left these thrift shops dejected, getting behind the wheel of his car to turn the ignition two times, three times, four times, opening the window, letting the hot, heavy air in, sighing and frustrated, then sneaking up on the son of a bitch once again before it finally came to life. Eventually, he ended up at the Galleria, a place where he hoped to finally find an answer, 
or at least something that wasn't a shrug and a suggestion to check the guide. He had to turn off the car, pulling it to a stop in the parking deck and realizing it was too much of a risk to leave it unattended in a busy place like the mall where he couldn't see it from the inside and there was an army of incompetent Leland Wexler types patrolling the place. Stuffing his keys in his pocket, he walked into the plaza, booming with business on a Thursday afternoon. Unattended kids on their summer vacation ran in mobs around the food court, haphazardly throwing the bills of tens and twenties their parents had dropped them off with for the day at the food vendors and kiosks selling cheap plastic crap that was as seen on TV. Jim dodged them like a robot on a mission, his tunnel vision targeting the top of the food court escalator, which brought him right to the door of Suncoast Video. It was the one place in college where Jim and his friends had gone to find stuff they couldn't find anywhere else. Suncoast had an extensive collection of classic independents, old drive-in movies from the glory days of drive-in movies, a long shelf of mystery science theater, and even the goofy B-movie crap they showed on mystery science theater without the puppet commentary. Jim's friends had always freaked out over the anime and could pour over the anime rack until closing time when the vacuum cleaner came out and the clerks pulled the metal gate halfway down as a passive-aggressive go-away. Suncoast was a video freak's paradise, and as Jim entered the store, he realized that he had subconsciously routed his quest here. Like Oz, it was the end of the road, the last place for answers. Still, even in these hollowed aisles of oddball video obscura, Jim managed his expectations. Even as he saw the the, the Suncoast clerk, who he was sure was the one person in the whole of the Birmingham suburbs who would most likely be able to help him. He was the tall, gangly clerk with dark sunglasses and a pot smoker's amble, who always spoke slow and cool, and treated his customers like it was their honor and privilege to be speaking with him. Jim and his friends never got his name. They just called him Suncoast Tarantino. Suncoast Tarantino stood behind the counter talking to another clerk, and Jim had to wait a minute before he finished. Jim bided his time watching one of the preview TVs in the store, at the moment playing a tape of Empire Records. Like the Video Street Video Store, Jim thought, it was interesting to see that some things never changed. I can't believe you've never seen it, Suncoast Tarantino was saying. It's like fiercely independent. The guy like sold his comic book collection to make it. Yeah, it sounds cool, the other clerk was saying. Jim could tell from the way she was examining her manicure that she was strictly uninterested. My buddy's mailing me the Sundance cut of it. It's super rare. It's got all the like original music and supposedly like an alternate ending where Randall and Jay fall in love with each other. So crazy. Cool. What's up, boss? Jim had gotten caught up in a scene from Empire Records, the one where the metalhead kid becomes enamored with a Guar music video and imagines himself being eaten by one of their massive monster puppets. It took the guy asking a second time for Jim to realize he was being spoken to. Yeah, I need a movie, Jim said. What's this place look like, man? Foot Locker? You come to the right place to so spit it out. Jim told him. Channel 6, 2 a.m. A guy in a business suit with a guitar looked like a preacher. Suncoast Tarantino took a long pause to think. As if for dramatic effect, or maybe just a nervous tick, he tilted his head and hmmmed like a Buddhist doing a mantra. He pressed his thumb and index finger on both hands together. 
Jim saw the female clerk watch him do the job. Finally, he came back to Earth. You said the 60s? Yeah, Jim said. An independent movie. I've never seen anything like it. It was like all the other movies at that time that looked censored and phony. It wasn't like them. There was like this subversive quality to it, you know? Like dangerous? The guy smiled. Like he knew exactly what Jim was talking about. I think I got exactly what you need, bro. Come with me. Shocked, Jim took a second before telling his body to follow the clerk down the aisle. He was led past the anime section and through the horror and along the special interest wall with its adult movie titles covered by tinted plastic tiles. They ended up at the back of the store in a small section of tapes called Employee Picks. He watched Suncoast Tarantino thumb his finger along a section of titles under the header John. Was that his name? John? As John had had his back to him, Jim looked in the back pocket of his jeans and saw a book that he noticed sticking out of it. It was the latest issue of Movie Mad and Psychotic, Marine's Zine. Seeing this, Jim knew he was out of luck. If Marine had no idea back home at the Video Street Video Store, then why should the guy who reads what she writes? Suncoast Tarantino turned around and handed a tape to him. Jim looked. What's this? he said. That's Clerks, man. 1992, Kevin Smith. The guy sold his comic book collection to make it. This isn't what I was asking about, though. Yeah, I don't know what you were describing. You didn't give me enough info. But if you want dangerous, subversive stuff, this is it. They almost rated that thing NC-17 because of some of the stuff they talk about in it. Trust me, it's not what you were asking about, but it's precisely what you're looking for. Jim examined the tape. It was black and white with a color title. He looked up at the clerk who just smiled and nodded like he was waiting for a thank you. He began to hand it back and say thank you and leave the way he came. And what, drive back to Viscaga with nothing but an empty hand and no gas? How much, Jim finally said. Suncoast Tarantino rang him up, yelling after him as he left. That shit'll change your life, bro, you'll see. Jim threw the tape carelessly into the passenger seat when he got back to the car, and he took a long breath before turning the keys. This time, the Dodge started, the first time. Miraculously, Jim figured it must have been the darkness of the parking deck, being out of the sun in a cool, dry place. He drove down Highway 31 toward the city. It was a long way back home. He could have just entered the interstate right out of the Galleria, and been on the short route to Viscaga that would have gotten him there in 30 minutes. But something was pulling him downtown, a lingering feeling that he was not done here in Birmingham. In the distance, he could see the sun setting over the thin Birmingham landscape, and a cooler breeze began to blow past his window. Passing through Vestavia, the last suburb before he would enter Birmingham proper, he stopped at a red light and saw in a shopping center next to him one video store he had forgotten. It was a Hollywood video, one he never went to with his friends because it was a chain, just as good as any movie gallery or blockbuster, with the same saccharine multiplex bullshit of which college had made them so cynical. Thinking what the hell, though, he pulled into the parking lot and turned off the car. The Hollywood video was busy with nighttime traffic, businessmen in suits just getting off work, scanning the family section for something to take home to their kids. High school kids cutting up, calling each other fag for liking this gay movie or that dumbass flick. 
a police officer patrolling the action section. Jim saw a mother talking to her two young kids through, through the store, telling them that they could each rent one movie. This gave Jim a flashback to back home when, years ago, it seemed now that his mother had taken him and his sister to the Video Street Video Store twice a week during the summer, telling them the same thing. Jim would usually rent a He-Man and his sister licensed to drive, always licensed to drive, with Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, and she would make them draw straws to see who got the VCR first so they wouldn't fight over it. Jim hadn't thought of this in years, even though it had only been, what, 13 years ago? 15 years, maybe? Back then, the only thing that had been expected of him was to sit quietly in the car while his mother drove or finish his dinner before he could go play in the backyard. He thought of Riley, who was somewhere out there right now. She had had, she had, had expectations of him, those of an adult who could care and provide for those he cared about. In a dead moment, Jim walked up to the counter, where a clerk was rewinding tapes. Can I help you? She said. Yes, I need help, Jim said. There's this tape I'm looking for. I've been all over town looking for it. I saw it on TV last night at 2 a.m., this movie. It was on Channel 6, and listen, before I tell you about it, you need to know something. I don't know the name. I didn't see much of it. So please don't ask me what the name of it was or what it was about because I have no idea. And please don't ask me what it said in the guide because that's the first thing I did was check the guide. It just said paid programming, only it wasn't paid programming. Do you understand? Sir, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. I've just been all over town all day and I can't find it. It's never happened to me before where I can't find a movie. That's what I did in high school and college, you know. I watched movies, and I had friends who watched movies, and we talked about them. That's all we did. We went balls deep on them, you know. So if, like, an obscure movie comes on television, I should know what it is. Or somebody should be able to help me. It just doesn't make sense that nobody knows. Mom, that man is scaring me. Jim, shaking, turned his head and saw that a line of people had built up behind him. At the front was the mother, holding on tightly to her children. Her little girl was gripping his mother, her mother's pants for dear life. Behind them stood the cop, a tape in hand, advancing slowly toward him. The cop said, Sir, can I ask you to step aside, please? Why? Jim said. Have you been drinking tonight, sir? Jim didn't answer, but he did as he was told. He crept backward from the counter, all eyes on him, seeing the cop inching toward him. Then he turned around and bolted out the door. Spilling into the parking lot, he landed hard against a car that had parked at the curb, its driver returning a tape in the drop box. The crash hit his knee, Jim feeling his kneecap smack against the hard body of the car. And then Jim moved toward his Dodge, limping and swatting the thick mods as they migrated upward to swarm under the hot streetlights. He got into the car and put the keys in, seeing the cops standing in the door of the Hollywood video, watching his every move. Jim just looked back at him, turning the keys. The engine sputtered and died. He turned them again, and nothing. The cop began advancing toward Jim, his hand on his belt, his hand on something. Jim kept turning the keys, no time for his ritual sneak attack on the son of a bitch. The cop was within a couple of yards when the engine finally sputtered to life, and Jim blindly jerked it into gear, hoping he was in park as he floored the gas and felt himself propel backwards. He didn't look back to see if the cop was following him. 
He didn't look in the rear view until he was well out of Vestavia and way down Highway 31, turning onto Red Mountain Expressway, which brought him into the city. He didn't come to reflect on what had happened until he exited the expressway, his adrenaline cooling, his heart returning to normal. Now he looked around and saw that he was driving down University Boulevard, quiet at 8 p.m. in early June. To his left and right were the scattered old buildings of the University of Alabama at Birmingham, the Lister Hill building where he had twice flunked finite mathematics, the Hill University Center where he killed time between classes, playing pool in the rec hall, the education building where he had taken his major courses. He pulled his car to a stop in the empty parking lot of the Bell Theater. It had once been his favorite place on campus, where, in his freshman year, he had taken an intro to theater course as a requirement for his education major, the thinking being that he would need to be creative and sometimes improvise with students. He had been a true believer back then, studying all night and coming to campus every morning at 8 on the dot, despite his first class being at 9.30. College was a fresh start, and he had intended to take advantage of it. Then he came to Bell Theater and met Riley, who was taking the class as an elective. And, and he met his video freak friends, who wore Evil Dead and Reanimator shirts, and talked about the movies that Maureen had introduced him to back home when he was lonely at Pratt High School and needed something that spoke his language. And it turned out that something was movies. From there, all bets were off. He still went to classes when it was required, but pretty much avoided UAB the rest of the time. He had opted most during those days to spend time with his friends, ambling around Suncoast or watching movies and bullshitting at their apartments, or falling in love with Riley, somewhere quiet where they could be alone. He left the engine running and stepped out. His knees still inflamed like hell. He limped up to the door of the old decrepit building that was Bell Theater and wondered if they still kept it unlocked. Once, they had never locked it. Jim and Riley and his friends had found this out the night before graduation, over a year ago, when they came here in the middle of the night, loaded on whiskey and gin. They stormed the halls in the empty building, talking about the old times and how they would never be here again. On the stage in the main auditorium, they toasted to their futures. Then, his friends fell asleep on the stage, and Riley and Jim took themselves up to the catwalk, where they made love and fell asleep. Jim pulled on the door, and the door stayed. He limped around the side of the building and found that all the other doors were locked as well. Then he just sat on a bench on the lawn, his eyes scanning a bulletin board of campus events, a talent show at the Alice Stevens Center, a multicultural day at the Hill Center, a job fair that had happened two weeks earlier. Then his eyes landed on a one particular flyer, standing out from all the others with its green paper and giant letters printed in a creepy horror movie font. B-Movie Night! Come watch the best of the worst. Thursday, June 10th, 9 to whenever, 6200 10th Avenue South. It wasn't the event that caught his eye, but the address, 6200. It was the number that had stuck in his head all day. The number that had guided his quest, Channel 6, he said, 2 a.m. Gripping the flyer tight in one hand, he steered the Dodge with the other through the crowded avenues in the neighborhoods behind UAB. It was a place of townhouses and apartments, and the never-ending parties of students who lived in them. 
But now it was quiet, mostly. The students being on break had long gone from Birmingham. But the eerie silence of the neighborhood soon gave way to the noise of a house party, which had spilled outside into the streets. Jim saw students walking around with plastic solo cups, some of them in monster costumes, and dressed up like heroes and villains of the weird movies they liked. He looked at the numbers of the house, 6200. When he stepped inside the house, he didn't get far before an excited girl who was dressed like Divine in a pink wig and a moo-moo stormed up to him with a sharpie and a name tag. Virgin, she said. What? Are you a virgin? That's a weird question. Look, I'm just here to see who owns the house. Have you seen this movie before? The girl said, pretending not to hear him. What movie? The Howling Seven, silly. Have you seen it? I don't guess so. Smiling, the girl in the pink flamingo got up, uh, get up, scribbled the word virgin on the name tag and stuck it on Jim's chest. Chill out, man. It's a party, she said and went off. Now labeled, Jim pushed down the crowded hallway. He passed a dining room where college kids in costumes were doing keg stands and a bedroom where a bunch of guys were standing in front of others who were seated on the bed and carpet doing an impromptu performance where they belted the stars at night are big and bright and zipping their flies up and down instead of the usual clap before finishing deep in the heart of Texas. The kids cheered in the living room. The center of the action was a thick crowd of kids with beers and mixed drinks watching the movie to which Jim was supposedly a virgin and laughing hysterically. It was a werewolf movie, no doubt an installment of the howling franchise which Jim had never got around to checking out. He certainly wasn't going to make this his first time because the kids around him were so loud that he could barely make out the sound. In most cases, they were shouting lines before they were said in the movie and making cracks of the bad dialogue and the acting and the giant plot holes. Then the scene came where the characters on the screen belted, the stars at night are big and bright and did the thing with their zippers while the kids did the same. Jim left the room. In the kitchen, he grabbed a drink from a bucket of ice and drank it alone in a corner while he scanned the party and wondered why he, he was here. Next to him, a guy was talking enthusiastically to two awestruck girls. So I've got the script written, he was saying, and I talked to the head of the communications department who's going to let me borrow a camera and mics to shoot the whole thing. It's all real legit. Cool, the girls were saying. Then one of them said, what's it about? Good question, the guy said. So it's like a throwback to the slasher movies of the 70s and 80s, but it's got a twist, you know, like how all these movies ended with girls as survivors. Like the final girl? Shit, yeah, the final girl, you got it. High five, you know your stuff, that's good. Jim saw the girl smile and as she felt appreciated. Well, I was taking this class on feminist theory this past semester, and the professor, Dr. Pendergast, was saying that the final girls of those movies were really, like, anti-feminist. Like, they were just a token for a male-dominated industry that was trying to show that it cared about women's lib and all that stuff. When really, all those girls in those movies had to crawl through all this shit in order to survive. And most of the time, those actresses were just made the final girls so they could stay on set longer and the directors could have more of a chance to sleep with them. So my idea is that I'm going to have a final boy, not a girl. It'll turn the whole genre on its head. Wow, that's cool, the girl said. I know, right? The guy said. 
So listen, we're having auditions probably sometime next month. I think you girls will be perfect for, at this, Jim laughed, a reflexive chuckle that was too loud to be muffled by the noise of the party. You got a problem, dude? What, man? Jim saw that the guy and the two girls were looking at him. What are you laughing at? Uh, Nothing. It's just that, well, you've got to know, right? Know what? Oh, come on, man. Jim put his beer down. You're talking about all this feminist theory and how you respect women, and here you are trying to sleep with these two girls. I was wanting to audition them. Jim picked up his beer and took a sip. Call it whatever you want, man. The guy stared at Jim for a long while. He didn't notice the two girls leaving for better conversation. Finally, he said, That's a very serious accusation. Who are you, anyway? I'm nobody, man, Jim said. I used to go to school here. So what? You've come back to, like, relive your glory days? And not really. Actually, I'm not sure. Well, let me take a guess. Since you took a guess about me, let me take a guess about you. You used to come to UAB, but now you can't move on. You came back because you don't know where else to go. Jim thought about this and then shrugged. He couldn't argue with him. I wasn't planning on it. I just kind of ended up here today. In that case, let me tell you something. Now the guy was in his face. This place doesn't belong to you anymore. So why don't you go home? Jim backed away and put his beer on the counter. Then he stepped off and headed for the door. Why are you limping? The guy yelled after him. I ran into a car. What the hell is it with you, man? He left the house and walked back to the Dodge, where he found a a kid keeled over it, puking on one of the tires. He put his hand on the kid's shirt and laid him down carefully on the sidewalk. The kid belched a word that sounded like, Thanks and Jim got behind the wheel. This time, when he turned the keys, there was nothing, not even a sputter with the promise of the engine starting. There was a click from somewhere inside the ignition, and then silence. He tried a few more times, doing his ritual turning, and then waiting, and then sneaking up on it. No luck. Fifteen minutes later, he sat behind the wheel, thinking, again, of his next steps. Outside, the party raged on, The college kids in costumes standing in their circles, talking, Jim supposed, about their own projects that would make a difference and turn genres and the world's expectations on their heads. They spoke about the world and what was important to them, and Jim guessed most of it was genuine, just like the slasher movie director was genuine inside. There was no doubt they all felt miscast and bound for bigger shows, like he once did. Jim stepped out of the car and closed the door behind him, taking his CD player, his tape deck, and the tape of clerks that the Suncoast Tarantino had sold him earlier in the day. Then he took his house key off the key ring and set off on foot. He left the car keys on the hood. He found a gas station down the street where he called a cab and waited around for it to show up. He bought a Coke and a Zagnut and sat on the curb in the hot night. Around him there was busy traffic. College kids and townies making beer runs. A couple of girls walked by Jim and giggled, and he realized that he still had on the name tag that said Virgin. He ripped it off and waited. It was around midnight when the cab pulled into the driveway of Miss Garcia's on the outskirts of Viscaga proper. At his landlord's adamant request, 
Jim had not left any house lights on when he had left earlier in the day, almost 14 hours ago, and the house was now a dark, foreboding mass in the vast of the country night. The cab fare came to a steep $52, and Jim paid it with his credit card, another drop in the pit that he preferred to think of as bottomless. He supposed this would be his life now, getting lifts around town in one of the three cabs that were in Viscaga. It was either that or borrowing a, cab, a car from his parents, which would probably mean moving back in with them, as they did not have one they could loan out in perpetuity. Jim stepped out of the cab and checked the mail. There was a thick stack of magazines and junk mail, some utility bills from Miss Garcia, of which Jim would need to pay a portion, but no letter from the UAB grad school. For the first time in weeks, he was indifferent to this. Maybe the slasher movie director kid was right. He had no business back there. His time at UAB had come and gone, and now it belonged to someone else. He unlocked the front door with a key ring that was now a little bit lighter, and dropped the mail on the runner table in the foyer. Walking slow, he headed for the stairs in the basement apartment, but stopped when he noticed Riley's box of knickknacks. It was still sitting by the door from the day before. He'd forgotten to put it outside for her to pick up before he had left. Now he felt a sense of urgency. Maybe she had been by and nobody had been there to meet her. Maybe she had needed something that was in that box. A book she had borrowed from somebody and desperately needed to give back. A crucial piece of information she had scribbled on the pages of a magazine in the box. Well, shit, he said to himself. A minute later in the basement, he sat on the couch, messy with tossed around blankets and deep impressions of his body, phone pressed to his ear, and patiently letting it ring. Hello, a man's voice finally answered. The voice was groggy and slow. Jim looked at the blinking digital clock on top of the TV and realized how late it actually was. Hello, Mr. Hicks. Is Riley there? What do you want, Jim? I just need to speak to... It's okay, Dad, the familiar voice answered. I got it. Jim heard one click, and then her breathing. It did not sound tired at all, but impatient, ready to hear him, like she had been waiting for this call for a while. It's Jim. Yeah, I know. What do you want? Nothing, he said. It's just that I've been out all day, and I forgot to put out the box for you. What are you talking about, Jim? You know, I gathered up all the things you had left, and put them in a box for you. You said you would come by and pick them up. I forgot to put them out for you today is all, and I'm sorry. If you came by to pick them up, I'm sorry. Well, I didn't. Look, it's no big deal. Just throw it out or give it to charity. If I needed anything in there, I would have noticed by now. There was a long silence, and Jim listened to her breathe. He waited for her to say anything. What is it, Jim? Nothing. It's just I had a really strange day. I guess I needed to hear you for a second is all. Jim heard an adjustment on her end. It was the phone switching ears or maybe her leaning back into the chair or on the bed. He waited and she finally said, What happened? For a second, Jim considered telling her everything. The mysterious movie that he had caught on TV almost 24 hours ago. The trip to Sully's psychotic childhood bedroom. Shauna. Well, maybe he would leave out Shauna and her offer to come in for tequila lemonade and God knows what else. He wanted to tell her about the sojourn to Birmingham, the endless video stores and the dumb police chase, 
and the return to their old college stomping grounds, where they had once made love in a UAB building five hours before shaking hands with the university president and receiving their diplomas. He finally said, Nothing. I'll tell you in person someday. Someday, she said. Sure, no problem. Jim hung up the phone and sat in the silence of the basement. He sat for a long time, looking around the room, thinking about what was his and what had been theirs, and how he would go about hiring a moving company in the company coming weeks, and where he would tell that moving company to move these things. He thought about his parents' house in the Beech Grove neighborhood, about five minutes' drive from Purcell Park in Viscaga, and he thought of his old bedroom and where in Viscaga he could get a job where he raised money to not live there anymore. He thought about what he would do after that, and about whether or not Pratt High School was hiring. Out of all the schools in Alabama and out of state to which he had applied, he had not applied to Pratt. Then he thought about how it had not been a big mistake to move back here to Viscaga with Riley in tow. Rather, it had been a big mistake to tell her that the move was temporary. Maybe, Jim figured, moving back home is never temporary, and Riley had finally figured that out. He turned on the TV and peeled back the shrink wrap of the clerk's tape, and then popped it in the VCR. As the tape sputtered to life on the screen, Jim took out what remained of the pizza from the day before, three slices, and popped them in the microwave. He was grabbing one of the two remaining rolling rocks out of the fridge when he heard the noise. It was the sound of a rock kicking, or something tripping, right outside the basement door. At first, he thought nothing of it, probably just a raccoon outside, nosing in the garbage. He'd deal with it in the morning. But then he saw a shadow inch by the window above the kitchen sink, a human figure. He ducked down out of sight and grabbed the closest thing to him that could pass for a weapon, a broom which had been unceremoniously stuffed behind the fridge some time long ago, probably by Riley, in some ill-conceived attempt to clean the place up for once. The microwave toasting and spinning on the counter above him, he inched along the floor, holding the stick of the broom like a bow staff, gripping it tight in his hand. He reached the door and put one hand on the knob. If anyone's out there, go the hell away. I've got a shotgun in here. In one swift action, Jim threw open the door and flung his body into cover behind the kitchen counter. Nothing. When he felt it was safe, he peeked around the counter and felt his whole body relax when he saw the least imposing presence he could imagine, softer than a raccoon nosing around in the garbage. What are you doing here? Oh, hey Jim, Wexler said, startled. What are you up to? It's midnight, Wexler. Yeah, I know. I was just um making my rounds, making sure everything's a-okay. <laughs> I noticed your car wasn't parked out here, and, you know, I just... Jim watched Wexler drone on and didn't need to listen to every little syllable of his frantic explanation to know what was going on. Wexler, changed from his Nerd Patrol uniform of white polo shirt and khakis, was now in black jeans and a matching sweater, pointing to the makeshift parking lot of grass and dirt where the Dodge had once been. So you're the one ripping folks off, Jim said, interrupting him. No, Wexler whined. What are you saying? I gotta hand it to you, Wexler, that's pretty smart. You create a demand for a neighborhood patrol, and then you join the cavalry yourself. Gives you a good cover story so you can go around and see who's in and who's out. Good job, buddy. You're wrong. 
I really do care about security and I'm just making the rounds. That's all I'm doing. I'm wearing all black so that the uh, perps can't see me and Wexler relax. I'm just going from house to house and I seen your car wasn't here. Like you said, it always was Wexler. Shut up. He stopped. Jim stood in the doorway and leaned the broom on the counter. Now realizing the stupid weapon of choice that it had been, Jim thought about next steps, but all he wanted to do was eat dinner and watch a movie. It was that time of night. You want to come in? I was just about to watch a movie. Are you going to call the cops? Just come on in. Wexler walked into the basement cautiously. Jim offered him the last rolling rock, which he accepted. And then he put the three slices of pizza in front of them on the coffee table while the movie played. They watched in silence for a while before the first big joke of the movie happened and Wexler laughed. You ever seen this before? Jim said. No, man, but it's pretty funny. Hey, can I have that last slice? Ordinarily, I would say yes, Wexler, but seeing as you're a criminal and I caught you in the act, I'm going to have to institute some form of punishment. And Jim took the last slice. And he sat there and ate it next to Wexler, who drank his beer and laughed at the movie. Jim would figure out what to do about him tomorrow, because tomorrow was another adventure. those things so damn long <laughs> hope you enjoyed tales from Viscaga, alabama our weekly trip to a totally made-up town that takes place in some alternate dimension of our own where video stores still exist um i will be making those stories available to read uh, on my blog over at mikebootycom slash the midnight citizen. So be looking for those. So you can find me on Twitter at Mike booty, facebook.com slash the midnight citizen as of course, mikebootycom slash the midnight citizen. As I've already said, and I am also, uh, available to download on your favorite podcasting app of choice. I hope iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. You can find me over at the Overnightscape Underground, ONSUG.com, and at YouTube at youtube.com slash Mike Booty. I'm everywhere. <laughs> the moral of the story. If you are still awake, I think the goal of those stories is to put you asleep. To uh, to sleep. You know. If you if you actually listen to that whole story, which I think took me about forty five minutes to read. Um and add it on to last week's story, which is another 45 minutes. It's a long one, you know. There's something wrong with you. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that there is. You know, that's, that's what this show is for. It's who this show is for. It's for people that uh, have problems. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to get out of here. Until next time, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open.